Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeremy, and I am a deacon here. Uh, would you please stand and uh, read with me um, from the Bible this morning? A reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he, has died, and he died for all that those who might, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, Make God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you uh, that you continue to work through us and in us, and I pray that your spirit would be present this morning, that we would be people who hear the words, uh, and we would be people who do the words. Please give clarity to the message that Matt is about to present, and please give us hearts that are well willing and receptive to, uh, to your teaching through him. Please make our hearts change because we love you and we want to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Great. All right, I'm going to open the Bible and preach. I hope that's okay. If it's not, I have a microphone and you don't, so keep it to yourself. Um, so glad you guys are here with us today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the Bible. We're going to be looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Uh, if you have a paper Bible, that's on the right-hand side, and in the, in the right-hand 50% of your Bible. If you don't, still can't find it, just look open to the front page of your Bible and find the table of contents. It'll give you a, a page number. Otherwise, you should find the scripture on the screen. We're in a sermon series, like we're, we're taking the summer for us to preach through a set of what we call gospel traits, right? If you have genetic traits, physical traits, these are outward physical markings on your face and body that identify that you must be genetically related to your mom and dad, right? If you have, a, if you have like one of them cleft chins, like a butt chin right there, you got a little crease, Probably your dad has one of those, or maybe I don't. Your mom. I, 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 I'm not a science guy, really, right? But you'll have you have traits that express themselves outwardly that indicate who you're related to, who you belong to, and Christians are marked by traits, outward 
visible, seeable, experienceable traits that we speak and, and, and act in our lives that other people can see that ought to mark us, identify us as to who we belong to, as to the gospel that we believe, right? It's, it's, it's a, I just want to disabuse us all of the mistaken notion that you can be a Christian who, who says, I believe, I have confessed my sin to Jesus, I asked him, ask him into my heart, um, and now I don't have to pay any more attention to that. I don't have to give another thought to it. There's nothing for me to do after that. It's been done. I, I have it in my wallet here, my, my get out of hell free card. I've got fire insurance. Nothing in my life has to reflect this truth that I proclaim. That would be, that's, that's a lie that Satan wants you to believe. Because in reality, in this passage, God says, when you become a Christian, you're a new creation. And something springs up from that new creation, this new birth that you have. You're a new person. And what that is, is a life that reflects a different father, a different identity, a different belief. And so here today, I want us to take a look at the gospel trait of evangelism. Christians evangelize. Do you know why Christians evangelize? It's because they're evangelists, right? You, you do from who you are, right? So I, do you know why I preach? Because I'm a preacher. That's why, that's why our leaders really don't want me doing the welcome or the announcement stuff, because I preach that stuff, and I take way, way too long. I just, I, I got to story tell and teach everything. It's just in me. I can't help it. It's who I am, how God built me. And so that's what I do. And Christians evangelize because God made us evangelists. And I don't, I, I want to take that out of its American kind of religious context where you think of a, an evangelist as wearing a, a, a nice suit and there's maybe a tent meeting or he's a, a traveling evangelist and he's preaching at, at different churches and he's sharing the gospel, trying to get a bunch of people saved. Well, that is an evangelist, but that's like the career of being a, an evangelist. Evangelism means telling the good news. Evangel, right? Evangel is the word of God, the, the good news, the gospel. Evangelism is proclaiming, sharing, telling, putting on display the good news of Jesus Christ. And every Christian believes the good news of Christ and is therefore a Christian and saved. And now that's who you are. That's, that's who and what you have in you. And if it really is in you, it'll, it'll come out of you. You can't help it. can't help it. Because I, I I'm, I'm a preacher. Some of you help because, man, you're just helpers. Some of you care for people because you're, you're a carer. And so today's main point of our sermon Here's our gospel trait. This is what it, what it is. We live in every way as ambassadors of the kingdom of joyful glory. All right, I've been, I've been listening to a lot of a pastor named John Piper and reading a lot of Paul, so all my sentences are super long these days, all right? Just, it's been getting into me. We live in every way as ambassadors of the kingdom of joyful glory. Now, I'm, I'm, I've been looking at, like, when, we, when I structured this sermon series and all these different traits, I'm looking for a, a thoughtful, systematic way to go week by week so that something builds on to the next thing. So what, what we're talking about today, what I'm preaching today, lands on top of what's been the foundation that's been set for the last several weeks. And so you see that, those words of joyful and, and glory. Uh, and so, like, if you haven't been with us and you missed those sermons, uh, you, you'll be able to get what we're doing today, but I would invite you, you can go to our podcast, you can go on Spotify, 
and find our sermon podcast, RCC Sermons, and you can go back and listen to those, all right? You know, I talk fast, but I also talk long, so you might want to put the player on like 1.25 speed or 1.5 speed uh, so you can, you can get it in under three hours, okay? But well, in a nutshell, there, there's, this, there's this connection. It's, unsepar- it's inseparable. It's unseverable. You can't cut it. There's a connection between the joy, the happiness that every human being is wired to need and want and, and, and have. There's a connection between the joy that we need and want and glory. I'll further elucidate that in a little bit. Evangelism means sharing the gospel. So I've got several points under this one today that I'm just going to take us through. And they're all going to start with sharing the gospel means. Okay, so if you're a note taker, whether or not it's on the screens or not, just the, the church has been able to survive for about 1,900 years without screens or, or notes or TVs and stuff. So you can write stuff down, okay? So first point, sharing the gospel means knowing the gospel. It means knowing the gospel. One of the, probably one of the biggest and saddest problems for Christians, for the church, not just today but for all time, but definitely for today is... Christians and churches don't know the gospel, and they're the church. And it's, it's because we assume the gospel. We, we, it's been muddied, it's been transformed, it's, it's been just massaged this way and that way, often by, just by accident or with good intentions. But just like in a game of telephone, where the message starts here, and by the time it gets along, every person somehow adds to it, even mistakenly or accidentally, and sometimes even purposefully and wickedly. And by the time it gets over here, it can be an entirely different message. So we can't just assume that because you're at a church or because you call yourself a Christian or because I'm a pastor, you can't just assume that we know the gospel. You can't share what you don't have. You can't tell someone something you don't know. And so I'm gonna take us through the thing that we, if we really are Christians and we're, we're really gonna put on display this gospel trait that, like, I just can't help. I'm, I'm an ambassador. That's the way I live my life, is an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven, of Jesus. Well, then I want to make sure that we're clear on what gospel message that is that we're sharing. And you can take the gospel and break it into kind of four big chunks. And, and, and when you do it this way, it breaks the entire Bible into four big chunks because the whole Bible is about the gospel. See, there's four books in here in the New Testament called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we call those the Gospels. But those, those are the Gospels, but that's not the only Gospel in the book. The whole book from this side to that side is the Gospel. Every page, even if it doesn't have the word of the name Jesus Christ on it, it's pointing at him. It's pointing at the glory of God and the entire narrative of all real human history, present and future, of who God is, what his character is like, what he's doing, who we are, and what he does to make us and save us as his people, and what that means. The whole book. So we can break it into four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Redemption, I'm sorry, creation, fall, uh, redemption, and consummation. Let's take creation first. I'm going to go through this real fast. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Thank you for no one shouting, liar! (laughs) Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything, right? And what did he say about it? It's right. It's good. Okay? The, the, The Hebrews had a word for this. It was shalom. The peace of the Garden of Eden and the, the peace of the whole universe, not just one part of the earth, right? All of the universe, 
We're talking all the stars and planets and everything. Everything was right. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And there was peace. So everything was at peace with itself and everything was at peace with everything else. Everything worked right with everything else. Right? Like, I, right now, we don't know that reality. One of our members, my, my, one of my, old friend, my oldest friends in, in my life, uh, his name is Heath. He's got my computer, and he's really good at fixing computers, and, and I'm apparently terrible at it. He has it be, because my computer has fallen. The relationship between my computer has fallen because it doesn't act right, and apparently neither do I. And so me and my computer are, are at war. In Shalom, I press the button, it turns on. In Shalom, I click the icon, my video game turns on, and I'm happy, and no one bothers me, because I'm, I'm, I'm pwning noobs on the internet, okay? As I say mean things about my mommy, and I tell them that's not very nice to say. But that's Shalom. I'm, it's a, press the button, it's supposed to work. That's, that's the way God created it. It was the way he designed it. He created all things for his glory, to, to show his glory. That's why he created the universe. That's why he created man, because God is fully, totally, absolutely, ultimately glorious. He's wonderful, great, valuable, beautiful, majestic, awesome, terrifyingly great, unimaginably great. And, and it's, it's not that he created the universe because no one was there to see it, because we, we have a Trinitarian God. We have a three-person God who lives in and of himself as a community, God Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He's not lonely. He never was. But he creates the universe and he creates it and gives it to mankind to show mankind and all of what belongs now to mankind his glory. Why? Because he's good. Because he's good. So if you have kids, somewhere in there, hopefully, you can understand why you made the kids. Sure, maybe in our fallenness, maybe, maybe the, the dad or mom, you know, maybe their, their womb or their, their heart or their soul ached for a baby, and there's some loneliness there, and that's okay. That's perfectly okay. But when a man and wife come together to make a baby, it's ultimately and essentially an act of mutual love between the husband and wife. That baby is a product of mutual satisfaction in love between us, and the child is now a representation. The child is now evidence of the glory and the goodness of me and my wife's love toward one another. We're one together. And when we're one together, this is what happens. Think of it that way. God creates the universe. He creates mankind for his glory because he's good. And he knows there's nothing better than his glory. So he creates some stuff and he creates some people because he's good. And he loves them. He goes, I love you. I made you. I want to give you the greatest happiness. So here I am, and here's all the stuff I made. Behold, my stuff, and it's yours. I love you. Let's be together. He created Adam and Eve to be recipients of his glory. What that means is Adam and Eve had direct, close, intimate relationship with God in the beginning. They didn't just receive the glory of God's glorious created universe for those of you who like to go hiking, for those of you who like to go and, and see mountains and travel, we had like four or five members just get back from Iceland and, 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 and Scandinavia and that area. And they're just like, their tails are just like, it's mind blowing. Like my, my brain keeps on telling my eyes, nah, bro, you don't see that, right? The mountains, the, the, the glaciers, everything just so big and wild. There, there's a reason we like that because it's glorious and wonderful. And imagine that imperfection. Adam and Eve got to enjoy 
the perfection of God's glorious creation. But not only that, they got the source of the glory. All the stuff has glory. All of it has greatness because of the one who made it. His fingerprints are on it. But they didn't just have the fingerprints. They had the finger. They had the hands of God on them. They, they were talking with him. Adam walked and talked with God. He is the source of all glories. Now, God gave all of this so humans could enjoy his glory. We're created in his image. We're his image bearers so that we would be happy. Our never-ending life, the design he had for us, is never-ending life being at rest, being happy, being in comfort. Not simply being comfortable, but being comforted, being at peace, being provided for, working and your work is fruitful. And when you do stuff, it works right, which is really rewarding and makes you happy. Now, that's creation. Now, that's the beginning of the gospel. Now, the gospel moves into something called the fall. That's Genesis chapter 3. <coughs> Genesis chapter 3 is what we call the fall. The fall of mankind into sin. Adam and Eve, who we hold, are real people in history. They really did exist. Here's what happened. With everything perfect for Adam and Eve... Everything is in shalom. They got God's glory shouting from every bird's beak, every flourishing flower and leaf, every grain of sand, every drop of water is just beaming how perfect this is and therefore God is. With everything like that, Adam and Eve believe a lie that Satan tells them. Satan's God, God's enemy. He's a created being. He's an angel who decided he wanted to be God. He wanted to take God's place. And they believe the lie that Satan tells them. Here it is. He tells them, there's a joy that you don't have because there's a glorious thing that you don't have. And God is unjustly withholding it from you. You should have it. And he's not giving it to you. You can't trust him. He's supposed to be so great. Then why? And everything's perfect? And what's wrong with the tree over there, Eve? Everything's good. Why is he withholding something good from you? I'll tell you why. Because there's something that will bring you joy besides God himself, and he does, he's jealous. He doesn't want you to have joy unless it comes from him. He's jealous. He's, he's self-centered. He's an egomaniac. There's something else besides God that you can find ultimate satisfaction in. And you know what? You're only going to get it if you get it. God's not going to give it to you. What they do is they trade in the greatest, the most secure, the most ultimate, ever living joy and happiness and all the good stuff I just described. They trade that in for something lesser, right? It's, that, it's like that experiment that psychologists I, I've heard on Facebook have done where they, you know, the, the test is, you know, you, you put parents in a room behind a, a, a one-way, you know, a, a two-way mirror, right? And their kid goes in there and there's $1,000 on the table, but then there's also an Oreo in the corner on the floor. It's got lint. And the psychologist tell the kid, hey, um, if you don't touch that cookie, you and your mom and dad get this envelope, all right? No time limit, the, the doctor walks away, and now the kid just, the parents just have to sit there helplessly watching the kid for 45 minutes, like just nudging and touching and thinking about the Oreo. Maybe I should, maybe I should, right? Imagine the frustration, like the anger and the sadness that you feel when your kid goes over and, eh, this is better. 
right? $1,000, we could have put that on your college or some toys or, or something, or a vacation. we could have done something with it. But you took the Oreo, the dusty, gross little Oreo, and it was good for like 20 seconds. That tree, that fruit, Adam, that thing he put off limits to you, that's the real glory, that's the real joy. It's not God himself, it's something else. You can't trust God to ultimately satisfy you. You need something besides God. And the gospels and the gospel that we share as Christians, it has to include this unhappy, offending truth of our sin because since Adam and Eve, every single human being ever born carries the same trait, the same spiritual genetic trait as Adam and Eve, the belief of this lie that there's a better, greater, satisfying source of joy and satisfaction than God. And no one's happy about this part. No, no good Christian is happy about sharing the gospel and going, and by the way, let's talk about how crappy you are. You realize just how worthless and terrible you are? You're a scumbag. Do you, you have a full picture of your sin, right? No, one, no one's happy about that. We don't like that. But here, here the parts that we are happy about won't make us as happy. It won't make the people who will eventually believe. It won't bring the happiness that it ought to unless it's contrasted with this part that we want to leave out, which is sin. You see, the level of gratitude, the level of happiness and relief that you get if someone tells you that one of your debts has been paid, the, your level of happiness, gratitude, and relief is directly determined by knowing which debt was paid. Because if, if your buddy next door paid off the 10 bucks you owe to your other buddy next door, hey, man, that's really swell. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll, I'll cash up you. That's really nice. Thank you. That's an entirely different thing than your buddy showing up and going, hey, I, um, I sent your bank the full amount of the rest of your mortgage, and you own your house. That's outright. It's just yours. You don't owe any money anymore. Your response to that buddy based off the debt that he paid is going to be, a com in a completely different universe, isn't it? And you won't be that happy unless you recognize what the debt is, what the weight of that is. Now, when we look in the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the very first sermon uh, that he ever preaches as a pastor to the, to, to the you know, very first church. And he's trying to share the gospel with a bunch of people who live in Jerusalem. He's trying to sh share it in a way that's clear and relevant to the people of his time. And listen, they had just killed Jesus because Jesus had told them they were sinners. And Paul comes right out the gate going, hey, listen, all you guys, you, you all killed Jesus. You killed God. You're, you're all Jews. We've been waiting around for the Messiah, our king. You just killed the king, guys. You missed it. This whole Torah, this whole Old Testament Torah law that we, we and our fathers and our grandfathers and our forefathers for a thousand, a thousand or more years that we've been like reading and studying and believing and living really strictly by, the king who all that points to, yeah, we, you just killed him. That's a big sin. His, he's trying to be clear and relevant and, his, and, and therefore his words actually had to have more bite, not less. In fact, he, he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel know. Therefore, you need to know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, who, who killed Jesus? Well, Jews weren't carrying the hammer. They didn't make the cross. It was the Romans. And 
And the truth of God is, no, no, you Jews are God's people, and you're sinful. You're sinners. And, and you killed Jesus with your sin. And the Romans are sinners, and they killed Jesus. They, their sin requires the death of Jesus. And Gentiles and us today, of every tribe, tongue, race, nation, everything, we are fallen sinners, and we killed Jesus. He's the reason that he... We, there's a reason he came to die is that there are sinners who he decided, I got to do something about this and I don't want them to go to hell. I want them restored back to me. They, they should belong to me. And so I'm going to die and, and they're going to have to kill me to do it. Was Peter's sermon, was his language relevant? Yeah. Was it clear and plain? Yes. Was it pleasing? No, it wasn't pleasing. He wasn't just charging with, with, with murder. He was charging with taking their 1,500 years of history and missing the whole point by killing their king and messiah. I'm not, I'm not saying that in sharing the gospel, like the measure of how effective you are at sharing the gospel is determined by how offensive you are in this part. I'm not telling you that. No way. But I'm telling you that there is no painless way to tell someone that they're, that they're under the wrath of God. There's no painless way to do that. There's no, sugar co there's no sugar coating. You have cancer, and it's going to kill you. There's no sugarcoating. And in fact, it's not loving to beat around that bush. It's not loving to kind of hint at that or put it off, trying to find a way to say that to the cancer-riddled cancer person without making them cry, without making them scared. In fact, it's loving to make it plain, the sooner the better, in hopes that a saving act might be accomplished and not wait too late because no one has ever said, I'm glad we caught that cancer stage four rather than one. We have fall and then we move into redemption. This third chunk of the gospel, there's redemption. This is the great news of the gospel. And the great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who is eternally and truly God, he became a man. He added humanity to himself and he lived as one of us. We preached that last week. He lived in every perfect way that we were designed to and commanded to and we don't. And he lived on our behalf. So his life now stands as a record to stand in for our record if we'll accept his record over us. And our record of sin gets put on him and it gets taken as his record. Even though it doesn't belong to him, he'll take it. And he didn't, he didn't die to save good people because there aren't any. Jesus goes, I didn't come. I haven't come for the healthy people. I haven't come for the smart or good people because one, there aren't any. And the people who think they're healthy, they're okay, they just need a little help maybe, they're smart, they're great, those people are deceived. I come for the people who know what they are, who know that they are sick, who know that they are desperate and needy. That's who I'm coming for. There aren't any other kinds of human beings for Jesus to choose from. And that's us. That's us. And so we share the gospel, not as, I'm sorry, not simply as good people who got some help, but we share the gospel as woefully sinful people, dead in our trespasses, needing salvation, rescue for our very life. That's, that's, the, that's the perspective, that's the place and position we share the gospel from. This means that you're not, listen, you're not a hypocrite if you try to tell someone about Jesus, even though you know that you haven't prayed for the last four or five days or opened your Bible in a week or two. You can share the gospel and not be a hypocrite even though you know your kid caught a, 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 a butt whooping 
two days ago that he didn't really deserve. He just had a guy like maybe a talking to, right? Or maybe you were just in a bad mood. He didn't deserve anything at all, right? And you're, you're bad, you, you were a bad dad. You really screwed up. You lied recently. You cheated on something a little bit, right? You messed up. You can share the gospel and not be a hypocrite knowing all of this because the gospel lends credibility to the fact that I myself, a sinner who is really screwing up right now, I see you and I know you because we're the same. And here's what I'm leaning on and needing and depending. And I know you need it too. That's not a hypocrite. That's credible. This is why God chose Paul in his mother's womb. And he let Paul become a Christian killer. And then he saved Paul on the Damascus road. Why? So that Paul, the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is so he can say something like this. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost sinner, the foremost enemy, the, form, the, the worst of the worst, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul goes, you're going to have to go really hard in the paint to be a worse person than I am. And Jesus let me get there so I could be rescued from that so that very few people get to say, nah, but I, you know, you seem like a pretty good person. I'm not, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've done, what I put in my body, what I've done with my body, what I've done to other people's bodies, who I've hit, who I've stolen from, who, what I've said. You don't know, you don't know. No, God, God can't do it for me, man. I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. Paul goes, uh-uh. I killed his Christians for a living. I killed his people for a living. One of, his, one of his first preachers got up and preached a heck of a sermon. And all the people who hated Jesus, they all got rocks to throw at him. And they all, I held their coats so they could take their coats off and get a good wind-up so they could kill him with rocks. I sat there and held their coats and laughed and smiled and looked on approvingly. If you want to get in a fight, an argument, and debate over who's a worse sinner, great, but that's not going to be very useful. Let me tell you, you're not too far gone. You're not too bad. So that's redemption and now consummation is the completion of the gospel, consummation. Romans chapter 8 mentions heaven several times. Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. That's my own humble opinion, but I'm right. It mentions heaven. It mentions, it talks about consummation of the completion of all that Jesus has been doing and is doing and will do. It talks about several, the revealing of the glory of the children of God. The inheritance that we share with Jesus because we're his father's children too. The resurrection and the redemption of our mortal bodies, which are dead, which then will be alive forever and perfect, which Paul calls that the hope into which we are saved. The completion of all that Jesus has been doing, his purposing, his planning, his execution, all of it. The entire last book of the Bible concerns the entirety of human history, human present, and human future as God's plan through Christ has been, is being, and will be revealed. It's the consummation, the completion. Haha, it's done. This is what I've been bringing about, and now it's here. Heaven and earth. At the end of Revelation, in the Bible, heaven and earth are married. There's now no division between this perfect place of heaven and this dingy, sad place of earth. They're married. They're together. And it's perfect. Just like Jesus is married to his bride, the church, God's dwelling place is now, is now once again as it was 
with man and he will be their God and they will be his people. And the sea is no more because the sea represents death and so there's no more death. That's been put away. Neither will there be sorrow or pain or misery or mourning. He's gonna wipe away every tear and will live, all the nations, all the people of God will live with God, with one another, in the presence of his glory, with all of the perfected universe married to heaven as he originally intended and designed. And that doesn't and won't happen unless redemption, unless Jesus does what he's done. This is the purpose, the plan, and the promise of God to all who will hear the gospel and believe. Sharing the gospel means you actually have to know the gospel. Now, second of all, sharing the gospel means believing the gospel, and there's a difference. I'll, I'll preach this twice, saying it two different ways, but meaning just about the same thing. So this is part A, part B, right? Sharing the gospel means believing the gospel. Listen, knowing the gospel and just stopping there doesn't make you a Christian. Satan knows the gospel. Satan knows the gospel. Judas knew the gospel. The great atheist, renowned atheist debater, Christopher Hitchens, he knew the gospel. He knew the gospel. He could say it better than most Christians. But you have to believe the gospel. What's the difference? Here's, here's my Matt Ford version of this. Um, knowing how to get in shape, cut some fat, build some muscle in my body, that isn't a problem for me. I know exactly what to do. I know how to do it. I know where to go to do that. Nevertheless, while I'm skinny, I'm also flabby. Like, I take my shirt off, you might start thinking, I think your genetic trait is telling me you're related to Gollum somehow. You look like Gollum's kid brother, Pastor Matt. Right? I take my, like, if I'm in a swimsuit, you're going to see I look like a toothpick with a tumor in the middle. Okay? So I might be thin, but I am not healthy and strong. And in order to change that, I don't have a knowledge problem. I have a belief problem. Because clearly... What I'm doing and what I'm not doing expresses what I really believe is good for me and what I apparently believe is good for me is to be far more sedentary and not move my body and not exercise and to be more comfortable most of the time. I, I know, I have the knowledge, I know the knowledge. I just, I'm just not believing the knowledge, not functionally. Do you know how to tell what you really believe? Do you know how you can tell what someone else really believes? Do you know, how can, how can someone believe what you tell them you believe and that they should believe too? Do you know, do you know what's gonna set them up to believe you when you say what you believe and that they need to believe it too? They're gonna look to your life. They're gonna look to your actual action, what you do, because actions do speak louder than words. And inaction speaks louder than word. Not just by what, not just by individual things that we do, but the doing of our life, how we live. Yes, what we say, and how we live, what we do in real life. Now, here's part B of that. If sharing the gospel means believing the gospel, what that means then is sharing the gospel means actually living the gospel. Living as though creation, fall, redemption, and consummation are real things, and you believe that's the real narrative pattern of human history, present, and future. 
even more so than you believe that George Washington was the first president. Even more so than you believe that gravity actually works and that you might not want, after the age of 30, to climb up tall ladders or do somersaults or do anything that would ever put your rear end above your head. That's just a good rule if you're over 30, men. Okay? Just don't do that. Believing that creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is reality and living as though that's true. Which takes us to our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. There's the gospel message all throughout there. The, the bits and pieces of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation are in that passage. Let me take us through that. I'm going to start. This is, this is Paul talking about why he and the Christians evangelize and why the Christians he's talking to need to evangelize and share the gospel. I want to start in verse 13. Listen, guys, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If you guys, like, if you guys look at the way we talk, if you look at like, our behavior or the choices that we make, and you think it's crazy, if you think we're fools, we're doing that for God because he, he understands why we're doing it. We're doing it because he told us to, okay? So like, in, the, in the culture of, of, of Paul 2,000 years ago, it was an everyday thing that you just didn't, like, you could either abort a baby or if your baby came out deformed or it came out a girl, you just take the baby from the mom's arms and go, out, go outside the city gates and just toss it in the garbage pile. And, and no one's going to go, the ba- what are you doing to your baby? They're going to go, oh yeah, good choice, man. That one's not going to survive. That one's going to be a burden, right? That was just life. That's what you did. That wasn't a bad thing. And Christians were going out outside of their cities and collecting babies that had been tossed out and adopting them and feeding them and all the rest of the people. Are you Christians stupid? You stupid? It costs a lot of money to feed that baby and it's sick. It's not going to last long. All it's going to do is break your heart because it's going to die when it's three or when it's four. It might not last a week. What are you doing to yourself? Just let it die. Put it out of its misery. Put yourself out of your misery. You don't need all these kids or you're a Jew and that's a Gentile baby. They're dirty. Or you're you're a Roman, and that's, a, that's some sort of pagan kid over there. That's a, ew. What are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to adopt it. You're going to make it your kid? I, I could understand maybe make it your pet or your slave, but what? If we do stuff that's crazy, that it seems foolish, listen, we, we're doing it just directly to obey God because he understands, right? We're not crazy to him. But he says, Verse 13, if we're in our right mind, it's for you. So if we're trying to speak as sensibly as possible and persuade you and work real hard to make things clear and like use terminology and language and activity that you can understand, Christians and lost people, then it's for you because you don't know all the things God knows. I have to use a language that works for me and you where you can understand what's being told. Verse 14 he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've, inclu- we've concluded the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ determines the way we live because of what? Because of what we believe, because of what we've concluded. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus Christ died for all, each and every one of his people so that we would live. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul says, because of that, 
we don't look at human beings the same way we used to when we were in sin, when we didn't believe the gospel. We don't look at human beings. That's why we're going out and saving babies. That's why we're not aborting babies. That's why we're freeing our slaves and treating them like brothers and sisters. That's why we're living this way because the, these aren't just like animals that we call humans. These are human beings. These are image bearers. These are people who Jesus loves. He, they have souls. They're real people. And Jesus wants their souls to be loved and he, he wants them rescued. He, we don't know who the Christians are going to be, but we know there are Christians out there who right now are lost. So we, we don't know who they are. So we don't regard anyone in the flesh. We don't think of anyone as a lost cause. Everyone's a potential future brother or sister in Christ. We're not in charge of that. We don't know. The, the, the lost people who are going to become Christians, they don't have like spiritual neon signs over their head that the wise Christians know how to, to, to discern and see. And so we go to the good people that Jesus clearly wants on his team. And we, we don't go to the bad people who clearly they're not going to believe the gospel. Jesus doesn't want them on there. No, we don't know who. So we don't regard anyone in the flesh. Because what happens when we regard people in the flesh like they're not image bearers of God, like they don't have value, like God, God doesn't have a plan and a purpose for that person? Do you know what we do? We kill people. I mean, not outright murder with a knife or a gun or poison or something, but we kill people. We murder them with our lives. Take from them, domineer over them, abuse, lie, manipulate. We wage war. We hoard stuff so that we have more and we feel safe. And it doesn't matter if someone else has less and they're unsafe, just as long as I have what I need, and we just starve people out. And none of us are, like, all of us are like, wait, when have I done that? We're, we're, not, we're not Hitler, but we're doing it on these invisible, comfortable, convenient, American, modern, comfortable, leisurely patterns of lifestyle. It's, just, like, it's Chinese people who made my iPhone and, 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 and the people who made this get paid like 75 cents a day, something like that. And they work for like 18 hours a day and they get some rice, maybe some salt, I don't know, some, some fish. And, and, and they, they don't have homes. They live in dorms that are attached to factories where they make my iPhone. And, and the company, not Apple, but this company that sends this stuff to Apple to sell, they actually had to install nets along the balconies of these dorms because the workers there were so lost and so devastated and so overworked and hopeless that they were throwing themselves off balconies, committing suicide to escape from the hell they lived in. And so the company puts nets in to rob them of even that escape. But I, I don't wanna pay more than $1,000 for my iPhone. So somewhere in there, I'm not okay with it, but somehow I am okay with it. That in order to have a cheaper iPhone, I'm okay if it's outsourced to another country where we don't have to see what they do in order for us to get our cheap goods. That's what we do. That's what you and I are doing. We regard other people in the flesh. Paul says, look, we once regarded Jesus in the flesh. We don't anymore. What do we do? What did they do when they regarded Jesus according to the flesh? They killed him. They crucified him. And now he resurrected and came back to life and showed and proved that he's God. Yeah, we don't, we, don't think, we don't think of him that way anymore, guys. He's not in the flesh. He is God. 
Therefore, if anyone is, verse 17, in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, a new has come. That's redemption. And that's the beginning of consummation. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're divided with God. We can't talk to him. We can't be with him. We have no place with him because he's holy and righteous. He's perfect and he can't stand and he wouldn't be God if he could stand and permit evil, wicked, fallen, gross, disgusting sinners like us to have any part with him. He wouldn't be God anymore. The relationship that we were designed for, which is to be with God and receive his glory, see his glory and then receive joy, that's broken. That's off. We're at war. There's no friendship. What Jesus does is he reconciles the relationship. He reconnects what we broke. So that now, now, if you're a new creation, if you belong to Jesus, you can actually pray and talk to the creator God of the universe and he listens and he cares and he does stuff about it because in this relationship, he loves you. There's no war. There's commitment and loyalty and devotion and the love of a father toward his kid. That's what Jesus has done. And so what Paul says there in verse 18, Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and then he gives us the ministry of that same reconciliation. We have that same ministry in our lives of telling that stuff and then enacting and, and, and storytelling this stuff with our lives, with our very fabric of the way we live, what we do with our lives. More of that in a second, more practically. Verse 19, that is God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself and not counting the trespasses against them and then entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ. We're his representatives. We're his representatives. God is making his appeal through us. You have lost people in your life, maybe friends, maybe family, people that allegedly, apparently, you profess to care about. And if you believe the truth of the gospel of creation and fall, then you, then you subsequently would believe in redemption, right? Their, their need for redemption because you, you believe in their destiny toward condemnation and hell. And God's strategy for saving this person you say you care about, his strategy for saving them is you. It's you. Now, you're not... You're not responsible for saving them because that's the work of the Lord. But his strategy for bringing about that salvation includes you. Whether you're the one who closes the deal or not and they pray on your front porch and you take them around the back to the swimming pool and you baptize them that night. Or whether or not you've shared the gospel for years and you part ways and move away and you never see them for years and then bump into each other in heaven. You go, oh my gosh, you got saved. Yeah, like 30 years later. Yeah, let me show you. Let me bring, this dude told me the gospel too. Bro, nice to meet you. Thank you. Um, dude, you laid the groundwork for us. You know, it's so great. Nice to, you're in the key. You're our brother. We're alive together forever with Jesus and everything's perfect and great. I'm so happy. I had no clue that God was actually using that, what I was doing. I, we moved away and I was real sad and hopeless and desperate. You're God's strategy. We are God's strategy of how he intends to bring salvation about how people are going to be raised from the trespasses of their sin and death into the eternal kingdom of God's glory and light. For our sake, 
Sorry, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you, first of all, on behalf of Christ, we're speaking on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, believe the gospel. And here's the gospel in a nutshell. If you want to memorize a Bible verse, this is, this is one of my favorite. And this is probably the single, simplest, clearest, most explicit, full gospel sentence, I think, I think in the whole Bible. And there's a, there's a bunch of good contenders for that. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We who are not righteous, we are, not the, we are the wickedness of, of Adam and Eve, ourselves, sin, flesh, Satan, and demons. We're on that side. But God intends to make us the carriers, the purveyors, the, the, the vessels of, of his righteousness, of his glory, of his goodness. He does this through Christ. Now, that's what we live that's, that's what we live. That's what we believe and that's what we live from. With everything you do in your life. Let's get practical here in a couple seconds. Sharing the gospel, next point, means enjoying the gospel. Sharing the gospel means enjoying the gospel. People live according to what they want. People live according to what they want. In every way, Every decision, whether you're thinking about it or not, every decision you make, big or small, has a direct line drawn from that decision towards something or someone you want. Some desire, some appetite, some goal. It's what we said a week or two ago, right? Every human being makes every decision. What, what I'm going to believe what I'm going to chase after, what I'm going to study or learn, uh, what I'm going to do for a living, what, I'm, what, I'm, what kind of things am I going to eat or what am I going to drink, what kind of clothing am I going to wear, what, what friendships am I going to choose to have and, and who will I make them with and how will I have those friendships and what am I going to do and where am I going to live and, and who am I going to marry, who am I going to date or who am I going to have sex with, who am I going to touch and feel and kiss, who am I not going to, who am I going to break up with, who am I going to divorce, um, where, where I'm going to, how am I going to raise my kids and how am I going to vote, everything. Every single one of those decisions has a direct line attaching you to something that you want, and that's why you're doing that thing. Even here, it, like I said, it's, it's all based on joy. Somewhere underneath all of that, every action you take in your life, what we call your lifestyle, it's all based on you trying to find joy. You're trying to chase after joy, satisfaction, and peace. I just need to be happy. I need some comfort. I just need some hope. I just want some harmony. I want, I want to be right. I want people to be right. I want to be right with people. I want stuff around me to be right and okay. I want to be hard. I just need security. I need soul rest. My, I just, I'm just in turmoil. I need soul rest. Joy. And what do we all go looking for if you want joy? Glory. Because glory is the source of all that stuff. We're designed in our innate, natural-born wiring to connect glory to joy. And that's not a result of the fall. That's God's design. God designed us to go, I want joy. Better find some glory. That's the way it's meant to be. Adam and Eve go, I want joy. I believe Satan 
It's not ultimately found in God. Apparently, this fruit over here has some. That's what the fall is. Lost my place. There we are. Whatever is glorious, if I can get to it, if I can get near it, if I can get into it or get it into me, if I can be intimately associated with this thing that is glorious, that's great and amazing and it's good, it's going to satisfy me, it's going to make me happy, it's going to protect me, it's going to make everything secure, I'll be okay, right? If I can just get an unbreakable connection to something or someone glorious in a way that no one and no thing can ever steal it away from me, then, then I'll have joy. And it gets translated in to the career that you want or the man or the woman that you want. Or if you have a man or a woman, the kind of man or the woman that you want them to turn into or the kind of kids you want or have and you want them to turn into or the house or the lifestyle because those things hold some sort of promise of glory that will make you okay and my, my life won't, won't just be my life won't just be it'll, it'll be it'll be finally good I'll be then then I can rest even decisions that we make that we don't want to make even decisions that we make that make us immediately unhappy those are still decisions that lead us directly to things that we want I, we believe those decisions will still help us secure what we really do want. So I don't want to rebuke my daughters when they mess up or fail or when they disrespect their mom behind my back. I don't want to, I don't want to speak sternly to my son or spank his rear end. I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I, I hate those things. <laughs> I don't want to get up and exercise. I don't want to mow my lawn. I don't want to tell someone no because I'm a people pleaser and I like people to like me and I like saying yes because people like you when you say yes. I don't like to tell people that they're wrong or they've messed up or they've sinned. But in a way, I'll tell you this, I do want to do those things. You know how I can tell you I really do want to do those things? Because I, I still do those things even though I don't want to do them. Because I still believe underneath all of that, that doing what I don't want to do because I believe those decisions will lead me and the people I love toward real joy. Maybe not right the second, but it'll still get us there. So as much as I don't want to sternly talk to my son and spank his bottom and discipline him, I do want my son to grow hating sin and being wary and cautious of disobeying God and his daddy and his mommy and making wise decisions. I, it's better for him to know the pain, the temporary pain and connecting. This is what sin does. And sin left to its own devices will kill me. My daddy loves me and he connected my sin to pain in my butt, which is now gone 20 seconds later anyhow. I want my son to grow mature and wise and long and healthy. I want that more and I know that doing something here that I don't want actually gets me what I do want. Christian evangelism then means 
that with our words and with our works, with the very fabric and the very rhythms of our lives. It means that we are showing the world that Jesus Christ is the source. He's the fountainhead of ultimate joy. Our ultimate joy, my ultimate satisfaction, my ultimate security, my ultimate peace, my ultimate hope, my ultimate love, my ultimate soul rest is him. Well, it sure does look like you like your, your house, Pastor Matt. You really like that shiny red Jeep you drive, and you, know, you seem to like some of the stuff that you, you have, and they're not God. Are you? Well, I hope I'm not being idolatrous. I hope I'm not sinning and finding ultimate joy in those. But our God's a good dad, and he shows his glory and shows his love and makes me satisfied in him by giving me what satisfies me in those smaller ways, as long as my satisfaction doesn't stop on the people and things he gives me but it stops and terminates on him, the one who gave those to me. And so we as Christians enjoy God by enjoying in their proper places, at their proper volume levels, what our Father does give us, who our Father does give us in a way that no one, hopefully no one would ever mistake that all of our satisfaction, all of your final hope, all of your final rest lands on your husband. Because your husband is going to die either before or after you. I know I will. Unless Jesus comes back. Your husband is going to fail. He's going to really screw up. He's going to break trust. He's going to be stupid. He's going to be well-intentioned and dumb. Just like you. Just like you. And he can't bear, your wife can't bear, your kids can't bear, your house can't carry the weight of the burden of glory that will satisfy you and make your life okay forever no matter what. Your career can't carry that weight. And it's unjust of us to put that weight on our husband, our wife, our kids, our pastor, our church, our president, our government, our system of laws, our financial system, the dollars that you have or the dollars that you want or the career. All of those things can and will be taken from you in this life before you're taken from this life. And none of them can bear the burden of your satisfaction and your soul rest. Only God, who's giving those to you. We live our life in a way that communicates that to people who don't yet know Jesus. It means we are enjoying God, right? So John Piper, great pastor, he's designed God Ministries, right? Uh, and, and if you know, read any of that stuff, like you can kind of hear all the stuff, like I've just like soaked in from under kind of his paradigm of, of teaching the gospel here. But his, his famous saying, is, his quote is, um, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So you want to glorify God? Be happy about God. Love God. Enjoy God, right? We live as second... Corinthians 5, ambassadors, by enjoying the glory of Jesus Christ, the righteous God who lives and dies to save his sinful enemies and make them his baby brothers and baby sisters in his father's kingdom. So we need to make our, you need to make your decisions on what you're going to study in school and where you're going to live. Yes, what house you're going to buy and where. 
What school system you're going to put your kids into or not put your kids into. What career you're going to go into, um, when and how and where we're going to take vacations, how much money we're going to spend and how much money we're not going to spend and how much we're going to give away and to who and how and how we're going to structure our schedule and how many hobbies are we going to do, how many sports or activities are our kids going to do and not do. All of those decisions, all of those life decisions need to be centered around this question. If you believe the gospel and therefore accept your calling and position as an ambassador of Christ, will this help me enjoy and be satisfied with the God who gives it to me? If I do this, if I take this, if I move there, is this going to help me enjoy God even more than the thing I'm laying hold of? Furthermore, is it going to bring me closer to the source of glory that I desperately need for joy? Uh, this house could make me happy. This girlfriend or boyfriend could make me happy. But is it going to get me closer? Is this person or this thing, is this activity, this career, is, is it going to get me closer? Is it going to help me get closer to God who is the source of my real joy? Will this put me, will this put my family in position to make Jesus' glory the most publicly knowable. So maybe I shouldn't buy the, the king's castle. You know, the, the house that, you know, doesn't just have a backyard fence. It's got, it's got 18 acres, and it's got the front yard fence too and the gate shrouded by trees so, no, you know, no one knows I live there. And I've got, it's got protection. Like no one, no one gets to be here. And I like my solitude. You know, I'm, I'm an introvert. That means God designed me that way. I don't have to talk to anyone because I'm an introvert. It would be mean for you to expect me to interact with people. That's my personality. Don't blame me. I'm going to live this life. With me and my family, we just have this happy little life on this, on this ranch, and we can afford it. It's a good thing. It's not a sin, is it? But maybe I shouldn't because I, I can't live here in the way I want to live and make the glory of Jesus publicly knowable. If I'm going to live there, I'm going to have to make some real big decisions on how me and my family are going to live our life because we're introverts and we're homebodies and we, we kind of have a closed home and we don't like a whole bunch of strangers or visitors and we're going to have to ask Jesus to help us change the way we think and feel. We're going to have to learn how to host. We're going to have to learn how to be hospitable and invite people over, especially lost friends or at least my Christian friends who are extroverts and they bring their lost friends over, Right? I'm going to make a decision on what house I buy or where I'm going to live based off of will this help me see the glory of Jesus and find joy in him most? Will this put me and my family in a position to be good ambassadors so that other people see how much we enjoy God and how good he is? Can they see it from the way we live? So evangelism, it, it is a duty. It's a command. So why do we... Because God tells us, yeah, but if we stop there, uh-uh, we're... we're we cripple ourselves because evangelism is a duty. This is a command. It's an instruction. It's a law. You're a Christian. You better obey. It's a command, but it's, it's a duty, but that's the lowest baseline place to be. No one, listen, no one ultimately cares about duty. No one cares about ultimately duty. Even the most honorable soldier, marine, sailor, or airman, the most honorable and brave firefighter or policeman or EMT, they are not essentially and finally and ultimately moved by duty. Do you know what they're moved by? Do you know what they'll, do you know what they'll 
They'll die in place in the face of threat and enemy, fire, danger, and sword. Do you, do you know what drives them to do that? Not duty. It's love. Their love for their nation, for their family, for their home, for the brother on the left and the right of them, for what they believe will make them joyful to die for because what they love, who they love is glorious to them. And therefore, they'll do their duty. Like, that's, why a great, that's why a great military person, like a great warrior, doing your duty is just kind of what you do. Why? Because I have great love for, for what my duty serves. I have great love. I find happiness and joy in this thing of glory that I'm fighting for and protecting. So tell the gospel with everything in your life because of who and what you love the most. Don't simply do it out of duty. Do it out of joy because how good Jesus is. Final big point, sharing the gospel means loving people who don't believe the gospel. Real quick question, and you just answer it for yourself and maybe, maybe let the Holy Spirit rebuke you. How many lost people's cell phone numbers do you have in your phone? And can you find any text messages in your phone to those lost people? And what do you talk to them about? It's the last time you... You talked simply, explicitly about any part of the gospel. When was the last time you tried to explicitly or clearly just communicate to someone who doesn't know Jesus, who needs glory because they need joy to live, and they're your friend or family man, you love them. When was the last time you, you tried to love them by bringing them to the most important matter of the entire universe in their whole life, trying to get them to the source of glory and therefore joy? Do you know lost people? When was the last time lost people were at your house? When was the last time you were at a lost person's house? You can't, you can't share it with them if you're not with them, right? There are, there's a, there's a parable, a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. It's called the, the, prod, the, the prodigal son, okay? If you're not familiar with it, dad's got two sons, older brother, younger brother, younger brothers, Real dirt bag. Dad, I want all my inheritance early before you die so I can go live my Las Vegas lifestyle. Dad's like, okay, here goes. He's a prodigal. He's clearly bad. Openly, overtly sinful and bad. Wicked, right? Now, the, the common teaching of this is, okay, younger son, dirt bag, prodigal, wicked. The older brother stays home and he does his chores and he works the father's farm and he's a good boy. He's going to college youth group. He, he marries a young lady. He's reading his Bible. He's saying yes, sir, to his dad. He's treating his mom sweet. And he stays home. He's not out there hooking up with prostitutes and sniffing cocaine, right? He, he's the good kid. I want you to understand in this parable, there are two prodigal sons, one who is clearly prodigal and one who is definitely prodigal. It's just harder to spot for good religious people who do what they're supposed to. The younger one is easier to spot. And, and in parables, when Jesus uses parables, you're supposed to kind of find, you're supposed to look for who you are in this story so you can put yourself in there and learn a lesson. You're supposed to learn, like figure out who, where God is in the story so you can figure out that relationship what Jesus is trying to do here. It, it's easy. Non-Christians are the younger prodigal son, right? So like Jesus is telling this parable and he's got one big audience but two groups in that one big audience. And one of them is a group full of tax collectors and prostitutes and sick and crippled people, homeless people, lower class rejects, and they've all gathered to hear him teach. And so they are all supposed to go, oh, yeah, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm the younger brother. Now, who's God in this story? He's the father. God the father is the father. Now, who's the older brother? The, the other half of the crowd that Jesus is talking to, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish Pharisees, the Jewish people. Because they're supposed to be God's chosen people. Salvation is supposed to come through his chosen people. But in this story, he makes them the older brother. Like, well, that sound all that bad. I mean, the older brother, like, oh, maybe, is he maybe prideful? He's a little arrogant, uppity, whatever. But I mean, he's like, stays home and he does what he's supposed to do. He obeys the father, right? Here's the problem. Do you know who's not present in this parable of the prodigal son, sons? Jesus himself. Because if Jesus puts himself in the parable, then the older brother doesn't stay at home. He, he chases after his kid brother. He goes and brings his brother home, back to dad. And he won't be satisfied with being a good kid in the father's house. He's not being to be satisfied with living his good life, pleasing the Father with his moral things and his right actions and his wise decisions, that he's not going to settle for that because he knows that while his daddy's pleased with that, his daddy's going to be more pleased to see his oldest son go and chase after his youngest son and bring him home. He can't help it because that's who he is and so that's what he does. But Jesus isn't in that story. So like, where are we putting ourselves today in this story of the parable? Some of you might actually legitimately should put yourself in like the younger prodigal son spot. And far more of us should recognize that we're the older prodigal son. We're the older prodigal son. And we need to go out and do what it takes, whatever it takes to bring our dad's kids home. So I... Well, and kind of strange now, too. Um, I love preaching Sunday mornings, but uh, the one preaching opportunity I covet the most is funerals. I know that might sound morbid, but it's not, I assure you. No one cares about me preaching weddings. I've preached some of yours. No one, no one cares that I'm preaching that. They, they want to see her in the dress, they want to see him kiss her, and they want to go eat the food her dad paid for, all right? No one cares about the gospel that I'm trying to preach. But at a funeral, everyone is facing eternity. And someone that they know and love is in that box. And they've arrived there already. And there's no time that I've ever found people more receptive and ready to at least hear the gospel. And I love doing funerals for believers. That's an easy one. As sad as it is, I'm happy for that. But I don't, I don't want to do more funerals for unbelievers, for people who are not Christians. And I've done more of those than I have for Christian people. So who, who are you going, who are you going to be bearing in the coming years that I'm going to have to preach for? Who, whose box am I going to have to stand over to preach? And what kind of funeral am I going to need to preach? Because one of those, I get to go, this person, the body's in the box, but listen, they're, they're more alive than ever. You just wait and see. Because when it comes for your turn of the box, you won't be here, you'll see. You have the hope of glory.
You have redemption coming back. But uh, who is it that you love who's going to be in that box? And I'm going to have to say, listen, I, I don't know for sure if they were a believer. The people who know them best, they don't think he, he was a believer. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you 100%, 100% I can tell you with all the confidence and conviction in the world that if he could come back right now, he would tell you that he did meet Jesus the minute he died and they had a talk. And he wouldn't care about how long it took, how long he preached or talked to. He wouldn't care if he had to lay hands on you and shake you. He wouldn't care what he had to do to get you to believe that you're going to meet him too. And you're going to have a talk. And there's only two different types of talk that each person has with Jesus when they meet him. And there's one that you don't want to have and there's one that you desperately need to have. Which funeral am I going to do for, for you? Which funeral am I going to do for your spouse, for your kids? By God's grace, please know, but for your parents, for your neighbors, friends, coworkers. You have a part to play in that. It's not all up to you. But you have a responsibility. You have a calling. You don't just have a duty. You have a joy to fight for in the life of people who need joy. The series is about the outward, visible traits that mark a Christian, and anyone should be able to identify us. They should be able to look at our lives and see that those, the way we live expresses an inward, invisible conviction and belief in the gospel. So we're supposed to be marked by our belief in the gospel, our lives that reflect that we really enjoy and find hope and security and satisfaction in God, and no matter what, when, who, where, when, how, or why, and especially when we suffer, we still find God good enough to believe in and stick with and we don't abandon him? We should, be, we should be marked by people who love people who are just like us, fallen and in need of glory that brings joy. People just like us, people who are fallen in need of a savior. You don't, don't go ahead and cut your own hamstring here and claim you can't run with us just because you don't believe or you don't think or you kind of even don't want the gift of preaching or teaching or evangelism. I'm not so good with words or I'm not so good at this. I'm not a good leader. I'm not very influential. I'm not smart like this person or that person. No, you don't get that. You don't get to do that. You don't have to be elite or awesome. In fact, tell you what, sinners find honest, humble, redeemed sinners far more credible than very apparently holy religious people who have their whole life put together and it looks like they're great and really all you needed was some help from God. Broken people who are humble and have been fixed and saved by Jesus, they're far more credible. So if you're kind of a mess, you get some real ammunition because the grace of God covers that mess. You, don't, you just need Jesus. You need to know, you need to believe, you need to live, you need to enjoy the gospel in front of lost people around you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the book that he wrote. And you have his church. So you're not alone. You're not, so if you're not good with the words, if you're not good at doing all the things and you can't be a one-man Rambo or Rambet, Rambet evangelist, you got a church. You don't do it alone. Yeah, I'm an introvert, but I got, a, I got a grill and I got a backyard and I got a nice place and I want people to come over. So steward or... John or Christian, can you, hey, 
place is open. Bring your lost friends and bring some of the church brothers and we're going to cook out and I'm going to put the ball in the tee, but can you guys swing? We do it together. That's why you're in the church. That's why evangelism isn't only or simply inviting people to come to Sunday morning worship or to your community group or gatherings with other Christians, but it's definitely that. Because you, you call in the support of Christ and his people together, so you don't, you're not doing it alone. You don't have to be good at the things you're not good at. That's why it's a church body. We've got different parts. You're an ambassador of God in every way with all of your life, an ambassador of the kingdom of the joyful glory mission of our church is to make disciples of Jesus on the, for the glory of Jesus. I'm sorry. Make disciples of Jesus on the mission of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. I'm the one who even wrote that, so I should. That's why we exist. And our vision for this year, I mean, it's, this, this one needs to be a big bullseye. This sermon today needs to be a big bullseye because our vision is that we've made a long-term commitment for this year and the years to come to be a church that is cultivating a real gospel culture. Now, I'm not the only one talking about these traits, but you're talking about these traits with each other and you're practicing them with each other and you're helping each other practice them together to show that, yeah, we have real confidence that we really are believing the gospel. We really do belong to Jesus. And then, if that's a real gospel culture, then hopefully what, what we believe God wants us to want, which is to grow our God wants us to want to grow by 20 new adult members of this church by the end of the year. And that, I, that's us together. We're supposed to do that together. We're supposed to aim for that together. I used to have baggage about talking about church growth. I don't. I don't anymore. Because I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have any problem with the idea that God is a father and he loves his kids. And he's not a boss hiring employees, but he's a father adopting children. And he sends out the older brothers and he sends out the older sisters not to stay here at the house and do religious stuff and be good people, but to go out there where our brothers and sisters are and they don't even know they are. But to go out there and get them. Bring them back to dad. To be about our father's business. The older prodigal son, he was mistaken. He thought his father's business was there on the farm. Nope. His father's business was out there wherever his brother was. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do ask and pray that you would move us as a church. That you give a really weighty, and Lord, just a history-making in each person's life type of gift today. Make a, a flag planted, a red letter day, something that people here aren't going to forget this day where you did something to them with your word and they became real gospel believers who really embraced their calling and their duty and their joy, their privilege of being an ambassador, of being good older brothers and older sisters, going out and finding finding your kids. Pray, Lord, that you would give us all the joy that comes with that because it's a glorious thing to be part of your, your family, to know you and be with your, your glory and, and to be with your glorious people, and it's a glorious thing to bring more into that glory. It would make us happy 
as people who chase after you in that. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. I love you guys, thanks.